All right. Well, as the kids uh, continue to head out, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bible or uh, access to the Bible on your phone, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're doing what we're calling Sermon on the Mount 2.0. Matthew is the first gospel, the first book about Jesus in the New Testament The Old Testament takes up about two-thirds of your Bible, so if you flip to the middle, you're still going to be in the Old Testament, but the New Testament begins about two-thirds of the way into your copy of the Bible, and the first book in there is the book of Matthew. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what have been called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives this presentation of what it looks like to live as part of God's kingdom. He says, if you're going to follow after me, if you want to know what I'm all about, I'm going to lay it out for you. And so Matthew gives us, through Jesus' words, this presentation called the Sermon on the Mount. We've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, kind of looking at it quickly, and I wanted to go back for a couple of weeks and look at a few more verses in depth that we kind of skimmed over uh, the first time through. So this morning, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21. And then we'll read 21 down to 26, and then a little bit later in the sermon, we'll we'll skip further down. What happens starting in verse 21 is there are six different sections that finish out chapter 5. We're going to look at three this morning. We'll look at the other three next week. So if you would, take your Bible and look at Matthew 5, verse 21, and let's begin reading there. It says, You have heard... That it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that we would hear clearly what you are saying to us. These are difficult verses. These are verses that when we read them, we think of so many responses of why we don't want those to be true. But God, may we see your love. May we see your character. May we see clearly what you're saying to us through the Bible this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look there in verse 22 of that passage, Jesus says something. He says, back in verse 21, you have heard that it was said. And then in verse 22, he says, but I tell you. What you're going to find throughout Matthew chapter 5 is there are six times that Jesus says, you have heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. Now the first thing we have to deal with is what's Jesus doing here? Because it sounds like Jesus is almost talking back to his heavenly father, that he's contradicting the Old Testament. Because what you have in each of these instances is an Old Testament passage, something that came before the time that Jesus was on earth. 
And then Jesus comes along and he says, I know you've heard that, but let me tell you this. It's not like Mary had to go up to him and say, Jesus, stop talking back to your heavenly father. That's, that's not what is happening here. If you turn your note sheet or your bulletin over to the back, there are some sermon notes that you can look at if you want to jot things down as we go. But what we find out is Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. He is showing its fulfillment. Jesus is what he's doing is he is contradicting wrong interpretations of these passages that have come up over time. And so the people had heard these Old Testament texts. They had heard them as they were kids, but they weren't applying them in the right way. They weren't interpreting or making sense of them in the right way. And so Jesus has to come along and say, I know you've heard this, but let me tell you what this really means. He's getting beyond outward observance of the law, and he's getting into matters of the heart. And here's something that we always have to take to heart, and we have to make sure that we understand, is the most religious-looking people are often not the most godly. And the person that has to take that to heart first is the pastor. There are a lot of people that can look good at doing religious things, but they are not godly and righteous in their hearts. And what Jesus is doing time after time is he is battling against legalism. He is battling against this idea that said, yeah, I did what the Bible said, but in that person's heart, there was nothing to match what was happening on the outside. And together, we have to fight legalism with everything inside of us. We have to fight hypocrisy with everything inside of us because it is so easy And I will be the first to say it is so easy to do the religious thing, to look religious, and yet it never be this inside-out transformation. It never be this thing that comes from our heart. And so what Jesus is doing in these passages is he is saying, I want to show you the Father's character. I want to show you what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And it's really summed up by this idea of love. Do we understand what it means for God to be love, and do we understand for what it means for us to be loving? And so we're going to look at three ways this morning that kingdom love shows up in our lives if we're following after Jesus. Number one, because I couldn't think of a better title for it, I called it anger danger um, on, on your note sheet. You've heard of stranger danger. This is anger danger. In Matthew 25, 21, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And we could, most of us, raise our hands and say, you know what, I've had some close calls, but, but that hasn't been true of, of my life. But Jesus says, okay, that's good that you say you've done this, but I tell you, do not be angry. And then you know what happens? All the hands that were raised when we said, oh, I haven't murdered, all the hands quickly go down. Because we say, you know what, I may not have murdered anybody, but I have been terribly angry with people in my life. And Jesus, he gets to the root of the cause. And he says, before you ever worry about whether or not you've murdered someone, we need to look at our own hearts and say, but have we been angry? Have we been angry to the point that we wanted something bad to happen to that person? There are two different types of anger. There's murderous anger and there's righteous anger. There are times in Scripture where you see God being angry. Scripture says that God was angry. Jesus shows up in the temple, and he turns over the tables out of anger, righteous anger of how the people are treating the temple. 
But what he's talking about here is murderous anger. This anger that says, I want something bad to happen to somebody else. I am against that other person. And Jesus comes along and says, we can't say, oh yeah, I love God, and then it not affect how we relate to other people. The things that we say about our relationship with God have immediate impact on what we say about other people, and it begins in our hearts. Are we angry toward that person, or are we loving toward that person? And what we know about anger is anger is almost always reaction-based and fear-based. When I am angry with someone, it's usually because I'm reacting to something they did or reacting to something they said, or it's because I'm afraid of something. As parents, we're afraid of what our kids might do, or afraid of where our kids might go, or we're afraid of what our spouse might do, or we're afraid of what might happen at work, and those fear feelings, you can either run or you can fight. There's flight or fight, and fear always brings anger if it's not controlled. 1 John 4.19 says that perfect love casts out fear. If there is fear in your life, it can inevitably boil over into anger. If people are doing things to us, we react in anger. And so what Jesus does, he gives us two ways that we counter anger in our lives. The first thing is we have to be proactive. Look at what he says down there in verse 23. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Okay, there's something very fascinating that Jesus is doing here. Because he's told us, don't be angry. But then it says in verse 23, if you're offering your gift and remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you're yet angry at your brother, but that your brother is angry with you. Go to them at that point. In other words, be proactive. You have to cut off anger at its root. Because we know as well as anybody else that if anger starts to boil up inside you or resentment starts to boil up inside you or bitterness starts to boil up inside you, if you let it continue to simmer, then it overflows in ways that you never intended to. And words come out and ideas come out and it's because we weren't proactive. Jesus says, don't become angry. And the way you don't become angry is you deal with it up front. And the second thing Jesus says is you have to deal with it personally. Look down at verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and then it says, you may be thrown into prison. What Jesus is saying here is if, he's, if you know someone is angry with you, don't wait until you get to court to address them. Be personal. Go to them and speak to them about the situation, because if you will go to them up front, if you will be proactive and you will be personal, you can cut off that anger before it ever turns into a court date and before it ever turns into murder. And so Jesus is calling us to a different way of loving. He's calling us to a different way of living. And this idea of being personal is extremely important because look back up in verse 20, 22 really quickly. 
want to see something that, that Jesus is talking about. We're thinking about this idea of when we're angry with people, one of the ways we can deal with that is by being personal with them, meeting them. Verse 22, it says, anyone, right in the middle of verse 22, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka is an Aramaic term. It was a term of the day of the language that was an insult to someone. It was a way of calling them empty-headed. And the word fool, at the end of that verse, the Greek word behind fool is our word moron. It's the word moronos. And so that's where we get the word moron is from the ancient Greek word for fool. So in this verse, Jesus is saying, you don't call someone an empty head and you don't call them a moron. That's good lessons if you're in here in your third to fifth grade or if you're 75. It's still a good lesson. Don't call someone an empty head and don't call someone a moron because when we call people names, What we teach our kids is you're not calling them by their name. You're distancing them. When you call someone a name, you're saying, I don't want to deal with you as a person, so I'm going to push you away by giving you a name. One of the things that you get to deal with um, as a pastor is you get to watch people recover quickly when they say cuss words. Um, I've I've heard some incredible made-up cuss words uh, in my day as a pastor because You know, someone will be talking, and they'll just be talking in their normal way, and they'll spout out a couple of words that we wouldn't say in church. And then they say, what do you do? You know, what are you doing in Bay St. Louis? And then it's the moment you dream of. You say, I'm a pastor down at First Baptist, you know, on Main Street across from the courthouse. And then this this feeling, you know, you can see it wash over them of, Oh my word, I just cussed in front of the pastor. And so then they have to start coming up with new words to replace the old words that they were using. Raka here is a cuss word. It's an insult. You're saying something about someone because you want something bad to happen to them and you don't want to deal with them as a person. And so what Jesus is doing is he says, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, if you're going to follow me, we are going to be about love, not anger. Because anger inevitably will turn into quarreling and fighting, and inevitably it turns into murder, whether it's literal murder or metaphorical murder. Number two, go down in Matthew 5 to verse 38. We're going to skip the next three sections in, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll come back to those next week. Next week is our uh, day that we celebrate our graduates so those of us, uh, or those of you who are graduating, whether it's from high school or college or a master's degree, we want to be able to celebrate God's work in your life. And so, so next week we'll be baccalaureate uh, graduation day here at First Baptist. Look down in verse 38. Jesus says in, in Matthew five thirty-eight, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, Do not resist an evil person. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That phrase in verse 38 where it says, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, 
that was a legal idea in the ancient world, and in some way it still applies. It was a legal concept called lex talionis. It meant equal retribution. And actually, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was a God-given idea of justice. What it was about was you couldn't revenge or you couldn't get retribution greater than what was done to you. So somebody couldn't steal one of your donkeys and then you go over and take four of their donkeys. The idea was that if something happened to you, you could only get retribution or justice for the same amount. And so it was actually a very positive idea. It was this idea that kept people from going overboard in revenge. And Jesus says, you have heard about this idea of equal justice. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And then he gives this image that's almost impossible to imagine. He says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if there's any more difficult verse in the Bible to obey, I I don't know what it is. Because think of this imagery. Most people in the ancient world, especially when you talked about use of your hand, most people were right-handed. So if you were facing on with someone, for them to hit you with their right hand, but to hit you on your right cheek, this isn't the idea of being punched. This is the idea of being backhanded. So the concept here is not that someone is attacking you and trying to beat you up. The concept here is that someone is insulting you, that they are backhanding you on the right cheek. And it's one thing to be punched. You know, that's, that's bad enough. But it's almost worse to be insulted with a backhanded slap. And so what Jesus is dealing with here, he's not dealing with how do I, what do I do if someone attacks me or breaks into my house? What he's dealing with is what if somebody speaks badly of me on social media? What if somebody insults me? What if somebody comes up and infringes on what I think are my personal rights? And they want to take my coat and so I have to give them my shirt. Or they want me to do one thing and I have to do two things with them. And so hear me very clearly first of all, and this especially applies to ladies This verse at times has been used almost as justification for putting up with domestic abuse, and it 100% is not about that. You are in a place, if you are in that situation, you need to seek help, seek safety, seek someone who will care for you. This is not about someone punches you and you stand there and continue to take the punches. This is about are you backhanded, are you insulted, and how do you respond to those insults? And Jesus gives us a couple of different ways to respond to the insults. The first thing he says is to sacrifice your rights. When it says there at the end of verse 41, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is the idea that a Roman soldier could come up to you on the road and the Roman soldier could conscript your service. He could force you to carry his bag or carry his belongings but he could only make you do it one mile. But Jesus says, you know what? Give up your rights. Just go with him two miles. Do more than what he would have ever expected. So the government sends you a a letter in the mail and they say, you owe us $150. You know, that'd be great if it was only that, that little, but they say, you owe us $150. And you say, $200. I'll just send them $200 because it's all from the Lord anyway. Do you realize 
how crazy that sounds to us. That the IRS would bill you for $150 and you would send them $200 because you say, you know what? It's all God's anyway. That's what someone would have heard in the ancient world when Jesus said, if you're told to go one mile, go within two miles. Jesus was calling his people to radical, life-transforming love. And everything inside of us, especially if you're a person who has a very strong sense of justice, if you've been in the military, if you're involved in law enforcement, everything inside of us says, don't let people run over you. And that's true. This verse is not a call to be passive. This verse is not a call to let people run over you. This verse is a call to respond in radical generosity before they can ever run over you. So it is not about weak cowardice. It's about radical confidence. It's about radical confidence in God, that God has given us everything that we need, that he will always be for us, and so we don't have to go around every day worried if somebody's insulting us or worried if somebody is going to infringe on our rights because our ultimate standing is with the Lord. It's with the Lord that we have every good thing that we need, and so we can respond in this overwhelming radical confidence. People always say, well, what if somebody breaks into your house? Are you going to turn the other cheek then? No. You're going to defend your life, and you're going to defend the lives of your family, but you're going to do it in such a way that you aim for nonviolence, and you're going to do it in such a way that you're defending life, not just your rights. Because we say that we're not here to be run over, but we're here to respond to radical love. So what Jesus is calling you to is someone tries to break into your house. Once you control the situation, you offer them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like you say, I'm going to meet this person with radical love that doesn't seem to make sense in the world that we live in. And the reason we're able to do this is because the Bible says over and over again, vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's not ours to avenge. It's not our job to get revenge. It's the Lord's job. And so if we trust him, we are able to display this sort of strange gratitude, strange generosity that doesn't seem to make sense in our world. And then if that was hard, we get to verse 43, the last point here. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This idea of enemy love is so scandalizing in our world that it is probably one of those things that will drive more people away from Jesus, more people away from Christianity than almost any, anything else. Remember in the New Testament, when a lot of people would start to follow Jesus, he would say something very controversial, and a lot of people would walk away. And you know it had to bother his disciples. 
Jesus, we were just getting popular. We just had a bunch of people come into our church, and you had to say, love your enemies. And now watch everybody leave us. Jesus was always saying things like this to say, this is what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom. This is what it looks like to follow me. And let's just be honest. It's hard for us to love a God who also loves our enemy. And it's hard to follow a Savior who died for those that we want to see die. And it's hard to follow and worship a God who sends rain on those that we want to see receive harm. And when we go through life and we're not surrounded by this idea of love and we're not filled up with love, we run into a message with Christianity where God loves all the people we're not particularly comfortable loving. So when Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies, who is he talking about here? For the people that he was talking to, they had three main enemies at this point. One of their enemies was Rome. Rome was the world power at that time. Rome controlled the government. Rome controlled the economy. Rome was the world power. And they saw Rome as the oppressor. So they they saw the Romans as their enemies. And they always had the Roman soldiers among them to remind them that their enemy was there. They also saw pagans, those who were not religious like they were, people who didn't go to church regularly, who didn't have good morals. They saw them as the enemies. And then they also saw other religious groups, other Jewish groups as their enemies, which sounds similar to us today. The government sometimes seems to be our enemy. Those who aren't a part of the church sometimes seem to be our enemy. Those who go to different churches or different denominations sometimes seem to be our enemy. And Jesus comes back and he says, your job is to turn your enemies into your neighbors. And that's our call this morning. If we are following Jesus, and if we're going to be part of his kingdom, Jesus says you are called to turn your enemies into your neighbors. How do you do that? You talk to them, you spend time with them, you do good to them, you eat with them, you go out of your way to say, I'm going to turn my enemy into my neighbor. There's three phrases that I put on your notes. I just want to introduce them this week, and then we're going to come back to them next week. How does the kingdom show up on this point? We are with them, we are for them, and we are leading them toward God. So how do you turn your enemy into your neighbor? You spend time with them, you work for the good of them, and you lead them toward God. So let me ask us right now, who are your enemies? Who are those people that you want to keep at arm's distance? Let me offer you some options, and and some of them may be frustrating to you, or some of them may make a lot of sense. People of a different racial group or ethnic group, you say, I don't hate them. Yeah, but do you spend time with them? Do you work for their good, or do you keep them at arm's length? People who maybe have a different sexual orientation, homosexuals, those are the people out there. I don't hate them but I'm not going to spend any time with them. Democrats. Sorry if you're a Democrat. I'm just coming up with illustrations here. Democrats. I don't want anything to do with them. They're staying way out there at arm's distance. I don't hate them, but I I don't really love them either. Teenagers towards seniors, adults. Senior adults 
toward teenagers. I don't hate the teenagers, but do you spend time with them? Do you work for their good? Do you go out of the way to see them moving toward God? Jesus says that our job as his followers is to turn our enemies into our neighbors. What can you do this week to be with people, to work for their good, and to lead them toward God? And you might say, why is this such a big deal for Jesus? Why is he pushing on this idea so hard? Here's the reason, and this is our closing, our closing point. The reason this is such a big deal for Jesus to turn enemies into neighbors and to show love to those it's so easy to hate is because we, us, all of us, in our sin, are God's enemies. Romans chapter 5 Verse 10, listen to this verse. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Every single person in this room at one point is an enemy of God. We are separated from God We are rebellious against God. We are God's enemies. And you know what God did for his enemies? He sent his son to die for them so that he could be reconciled to them, so that his enemies would become his neighbors, so that his enemies would become his children. And if that is how our father treats us, that he would do whatever it takes to turn his enemies into his neighbors, we are called to do the same thing. And this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other religions in our day. Some religions in our day, if the God or the person in that religion is insulted, you respond with anger, you respond with retaliation, you do whatever it takes to get even. In Christianity, when the God is insulted and the God is ridiculed, the God sends his son to die for those people so that they can be made right with him. So as his followers, when we live in a world that says if somebody slams you on Facebook, you go right back at them. Or if somebody insults you and infringes on your rights, you don't let them do that. You make sure you get even. We have a Savior who died for us. And so we die to our rights in order to be able to show that love to those who are around us.